I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A century-old flying machine is the only link to a secret hidden at the ends of the Earth. This airplane flew over the North Pole. Or maybe not. A battle flag sparks a revolution, but leaves an enigma in its wake. Who made this flag? Who designed this message? Who carried this around and made it part of their protest? and a plaster bust said to be haunted by the spirit of a man who couldn't die. A lot of the audiences actually believed he would somehow be able to evade death. Across the United States, in the nation's most revered institutions, our celebrated history is on display. Wondrous treasures from the past, bizarre relics, but behind every amazing artifact is another tale to be told and a secret waiting to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. A hundred miles north of Milwaukee is Appleton, Wisconsin. And here, in the city center, is an unexpected sight. This imposing stone building, once a Masonic temple, is now called the History Museum at the Castle. Inside, over 50,000 artifacts showcase the area's rich history. But one artifact stands head and shoulders above the rest. Secured behind plexiglass, this plaster bust 21 inches tall, is modeled after a man who has long passed on, but whose mysterious talents still baffle the mind. He could escape anything. There was no jail cell, lock, handcuff, anything that he couldn't get out of. The subject is America's greatest magician, Harry Houdini. To curator Carolyn Lane, 
the bust exerts a strange and captivating aura. There's something in his eyes. He's not smiling, really, but you can see something. There's a hint of magic in his eyes. Houdini sat for this portrait in 1913 at the height of his illustrious career. And at the time, a total of three busts were made. But in 1926, just days after the magician's death, the other two statues inexplicably fell from their pedestals and smashed on the floor. Because these busts have met with an untimely end, a lot of folks will claim that our bust is haunted. Could this bust really be possessed by the spirit of the famous magician? The answer may lie in the mysterious circumstances that surround Harry Houdini's death. Today, most people think that Houdini drowned in one of his escape acts. Others claim he was murdered. But few people know the real truth behind the magician's final days. The story of Houdini's actual death is far more tragic than any of these stories and myths about it. So how did this master of magic really die? The bizarre story of Harry Houdini begins in New York City, 1891. Here, a teenage Hungarian immigrant named Eric Weiss discovers what will become his lifelong passion, magic. Captivated by the art of illusion, he begins at the bottom, honing his craft with simple card tricks in Coney Island. Inspired by the famous French magician, Robert Houdin, Weiss soon adopts a stage name. He took that name and added an I to the end. And all of a sudden, you have Harry Houdini. Talented but unknown, Houdini desperately wants to set himself apart from other performers, but knows he must come up with something different, something that will amaze audiences. So he tries his first escape act, breaking free from handcuffs. With the handcuff act, Eric Weiss's transformation into Harry Houdini is complete. Fueled by success, the handcuff king ups the ante. One of his next really big things was the straitjacket escape. In a dazzling display of showmanship, Houdini would hang upside down from the sides of tall buildings and extract himself from a straitjacket in midair. Putting his life in dire peril becomes the hallmark of Houdini's act. A lot of the audiences who watched Houdini perform actually believed he was magic and would somehow be able to evade death. But as it turned out, the man who could not die would meet his end in the most unexpected way. The most common myth about Houdini's death surrounds Houdini drowning. It's a great story. It's very romantic, very dramatic, and not at all true. <laughs> the real story of Houdini's death begins backstage in Montreal on October 22nd, 1926. A haggard Houdini has been fighting a mysterious illness for several weeks. As he rests before a show, a local fan named Gordon Whitehead propositions him. Gordon Whitehead asked, you know, 
During your performances, you claim you can withstand any punch, any blow someone can deliver to you. Is it true? The 52-year-old illusionist accepts the challenge. But before Houdini can brace himself, Whitehead delivers several hard, hammer-like punches to the magician's stomach. Houdini is stunned by the pain. Houdini was a real macho, tough guy um, of the old show-must-go-on mentality. He just continued performing. Two days later, after his next show in Detroit, Houdini staggers from the stage. Could Whitehead's strike have felled the unstoppable Houdini? The prospect seems improbable. But at the hospital, doctors are shocked to learn that this may, in part, be true. The punch seemed to have burst the magician's appendix. But what's also clear is that the blow complicated an already serious condition. Once he's in the hospital, the doctors figure out that he's suffering from appendicitis. And not just recent appendicitis, it's severe. The infection was so bad that there wasn't anything they could do. Even the great Houdini can't escape death this time. He dies on October 31st, 1926, Halloween. The official cause of death, bacterial infection. People were just shocked to see someone who could withstand anything succumb to such a normal end. And after his death, the tales of how Houdini met his end became ever more fantastical until they matched the man's legendary reputation. And it is this urge to perpetuate the myth of this great magician that led to the rumor that Houdini's ghost might still dwell in this bust. Is it really haunted? No one knows. But despite all the mystery and misinformation surrounding Houdini, today, one thing remains certain. When you ask a second grader, who's the greatest magician who ever lived? They will all unanimously say it was Houdini. 1926, the same year the illustrious illusionist dies, a new American hero achieves everlasting fame in an epic flight to the farthest reaches of the planet. Coming up on Mysteries at the Museum. Detroit, Michigan, birthplace of the American automobile. In nearby Dearborn, the renowned Henry Ford Museum holds a breathtaking collection of automobiles that documents a century of Americans on the move. Under the museum's colossal roof are hundreds of vehicles, ranging from antique roadsters to sleek hot rods. But one exhibit, Heroes of the Sky, showcases artifacts that soared high above the roadways. For curator Bob Casey, one plane in particular catches his eye. The first time I saw the Josephine Ford, it was quite stunning to me, because I'd read about this as a kid. If you get up close, one of the first things you notice is it's actually sitting on large wooden skis. So you may get the idea that this, this airplane is, is poised to do something special. In 1926, the intrepid pilot of this airplane, 
set out on a death-defying flight to the end of the earth with one goal in mind, to be the first human to fly over the North Pole. But to this day, the journey remains shrouded in mystery. This airplane flew over the North Pole. Or maybe not. What exactly happened on the Josephine Ford's most celebrated flight? It's spring of 1926, and the world is seized with aviation fever. In the early 1920s, aviation was one of the great new cutting-edge technologies. People were fascinated by it. Pilots became uh, heroes. Spurred on by an adoring public, daredevil pilots are desperate to reach new heights and set new records. One aviator in particular was driven to go further than any other. Ambitious 37-year-old Navy commander Richard Byrd. Richard Byrd was well-known in the Navy, but if he led the expedition that made the first flight over the North Pole, He'd be a hero. He'd be a celebrity. May 9th, 1926, Spitsbergen, Norway. After two test flights, Bird announces he's ready for takeoff. At 12.37 a.m., Bird and his co-pilot, Floyd Bennett, climb into the Josephine Ford and prepare themselves for the 1,330-mile round trip to the North Pole. It's very hard to appreciate how dangerous this attempt to reach the North Pole really was. Despite the slim chance of success, Bird and Bennett take off into the Arctic winds and disappear over the horizon. All the ground crew can do is wait. About 15 and a half hours after the plane took off, they hear the drone of the engines, and then see it coming over the horizon. Well, when the plane lands, of course, the reception is huge. The whole crew is part of not just aviation history, but human history. But some of Bird's colleagues harbor suspicions. Almost immediately, some people begin to ask, could he have gotten to the pole and back in 15 and a half hours? But without conclusive proof of a fraud, no one is willing to voice such damaging allegations. Upon arrival in the States, wild enthusiasm greets the aviator. The National Geographic Society verifies the explorer's handwritten navigational readings and Bird becomes an instant hero. He got the ticker tape parades in New York. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. Um, he became a national celebrity. With his newfound fame, Byrd secures funds for several more expeditions, including two epic trips to the South Pole. After 30 years in the national spotlight, Byrd dies a decorated hero in 1957. But after his death, the validity of Byrd's achievements come into question. Suspicions about Bird's polar flight had percolated throughout his life, and now his detractors start to come forward. To travel 1,330 miles in under 16 hours means Bird must have averaged 87 miles per hour. The Josephine Ford's top speed 
was closer to 75 miles an hour. Even flying at top speed, Bird wouldn't have made it. Bird says, on the way back, we picked up a tailwind. And that's a plausible explanation. But there's another possible explanation for Bird's fast flight time. When Bird landed, there were signs that oil had leaked from the right engine during the flight. An oil leak could cause an engine to shut down. Why didn't Bird turn around when he saw the plane was spewing oil? Bird says it, they were relatively close to the pole. And so they said, let's keep going. But some speculate perhaps Bird saw the leak early in the flight and, fearing the worst, turned around well short of the pole. And then, in 1996, Bird's expedition diary surfaces and provides more fuel for the fire. Several key navigational readings from the journey have been erased and rewritten. To many, the doctored diary is a sure sign that Bird fabricated the navigational readings that showed that he reached the pole. But no one can say for sure. I don't think we will ever know the answer to whether or not Bird and Bennett actually flew over the North Pole. Richard Byrd's polar flight, genuine or not, is a testament to the explorer's quest for greatness at any cost. Some 20 years after Byrd's historic flight on Oregon's Pacific coast, a very different kind of aircraft was aloft. An enigmatic object sent to wreak havoc on the United States during World War II and it alters the course of history in a way no one could ever imagine. Next, on Mysteries at the Museum. The sleepy town of North Bend, Oregon. A hidden gem along a breathtaking shoreline. But this stretch of coast known as Coos Bay wasn't always so peaceful. Coos Bay is, is a very rough area of sea to cross. We've had over 150 shipwrecks in the last 100 years. At the Coos Historical and Maritime Museum, some 50,000 artifacts chronicle this area's turbulent history. But deep within the museum's archives, there is a peculiar object that arrived not from the sea, but from the air. 17 pounds and nearly two feet in diameter, this corroding metal ring might be mistaken for scrap from a nearby farm. But the ring was part of a secret weapon designed to bring death and destruction on America's shores. And when it was finally exposed, it led investigators to a startling new discovery that would change the world forever. Why was this ring sent here? What incredible secrets does it hold? And how did it cause the only deaths resulting from enemy action to occur on mainland America during World War II? It's May 1945. The Second World War is still raging in the Pacific. While thousands of U.S. troops have been killed in action, not a single person has been killed on the U.S. mainland. But that is about to change. Here in the Oregon woods, near the town of Bly, the Reverend Archie Mitchell and his wife Elsie 
are taking five Sunday school students on a picnic. After lunch, Elsie takes the kids on a short walk in the woods. Not far from the picnic site, they stumble on a strange-looking object. He heard his wife say to him, Honey, come look what I found. The next thing he knew, there was a large explosion, and he ran to where his, his wife and these five children had been. All six are dead. To the Reverend Mitchell, the cause of the deadly explosion is a mystery. But the U.S. military may have an answer. For the previous few months, Army geologists in western United States have recovered dozens of giant weather balloons 33 feet across. And each is carrying a lethal payload, metal rings laden with fuses and explosives. Who could be making these mysterious bombs? Then a simple lab test on one of the balloon sandbags offers a clue. They were able to discover that there were specific minerals in that sand that only comes from very specific beaches in Japan. The military is dumbfounded. It was thought that a balloon could only travel 400 miles before making landfall. Japan is 5,000 miles away, and there are no Japanese bases near the U.S. mainland. How have they managed to engineer a weapon that could travel 5,000 miles across the ocean? Unknown to the U.S. military, Japanese meteorologists have made an astonishing discovery. The Japanese discovered that at 30,000 feet, there is a band of air that actually travels at very high speeds. This powerful air current, moving at speeds up to 200 miles per hour, is what we now call the jet stream. But in the 1940s, it's an unknown phenomenon, unknown to all except the Japanese. Using this knowledge, the Japanese set out to do the unthinkable. They used the jet stream to send balloon bombs across the Pacific to strike the American mainland. All in all, Japan launches over 9,000 balloons, of which 1,000 are thought to have reached North America. And it was one of these bombs that killed Elsie Mitchell and the five children in Oregon in 1945. These deaths remain the only enemy-inflicted casualties from World War II to have occurred on the U.S. mainland. The balloon bomb, once uncovered, opens up a world of scientific knowledge. Today, jet streams propel the commercial airline industry and provide more accurate weather forecasts. Safely tucked away at the Coos Historical and Maritime Museum, this mysterious metal ring no longer poses a threat, and its secrets are now unlocked. 2,000 miles away, in the archives of the Chicago History Museum, is an artifact that is just as highly charged. How did this piece of fabric, adorned with a cryptic logo, help spark a revolution that still reverberates today? Find out when Mysteries at the Museum continues. 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Chicago, Illinois. The Windy City is the birthplace of countless American cultural icons. The Chicago History Museum celebrates the city and its many traditions with exhibits on jazz, railroads, and gangster folklore. But off the main floor, in a back room, curator John Russick examines a very different piece of Chicago's history. An artifact that incited a rebellion against mainstream culture and authority. It's a plain scrap of fabric, emblazoned with a simple yet striking design. With this piece, we don't have a lot of information about who had it, but it appears to be a flag. While Russick knows little about the flag's origins, he does have one tantalizing clue as to the part it played in shaping America's history. The museum's records indicates that this flag was one of thousands of banners designed for the protests of the Democratic National Convention in 1968. So who made this flag? How did it come to be in Chicago? How did it change the direction of the country? February 1968. The Vietnam War is in its sixth year, and at home, support is waning. Anti-war protesters lead marches, rallies, and sit-ins across the country. The war is 
really a galvanizing event, and it's really impacting the youth. One of the most vocal protest groups is an organization known as the Yippies, led by two radical activists, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. Abby Hoffman frequently said that what the Yippie movement represented was a new America, a new uh, culture, a new uh, energy driven by young people. The Yippies intend to shake America to its very core. They want to change the democratic processes. They want to change the, the, the party politics. In 1968, Rubin and Hoffman identify the perfect platform to promote their anti-war counterculture message. They'll protest at the Democratic National Convention. But they can't do it alone. The Yippies call for thousands to convene in Chicago. Yippies from all over the country start planning a large-scale rally. And since their goal is to reject the establishment and all of its symbols, one of their targets is the American flag. Instead of flying the stars and stripes at the rally, the Yippies decide to create their own homemade flags. When you have something different you want to say, something new, you kind of have to create your own flag in order to say that. But standing in the demonstrator's way is one of America's toughest and meanest politicians. Chicago Mayor Richard Daley. Richard Daley loved Chicago. He ruled Chicago, and he wants to demonstrate that he's in charge. Daley fills the streets with over 20,000 soldiers and police officers to control the protesters. There's a sense that something is going to happen in Chicago. It's, it's not going to pass by quietly. August 23rd, 1968, the first day of the convention. Yippie ringleaders Hoffman and Rubin hold court among the thousands of protesters collecting in Chicago's parks. With no official Yippie flag, many carry banners emblazoned with their own personal statements. And the Chicago History Museum's records state that this flag was among them. At first, the demonstrators are peaceful. But with each passing day, an inevitable battle draws nearer. On August 28th, the protesters are driven out of the parks by the police, and the displaced crowd surges onto Michigan Avenue. And at the Hilton Hotel, which is where many of the delegates are staying, there is sort of the classic moment of the 1968 Democratic Convention police-protester conflict. You have protesters being beaten severely by police and dragged into paddy wagons. It's, it's a really horrific scene. Over 100 people are sent to the hospital. News cameras capture it all, and the country watches in horror. And this was really the first time that I think people actually saw just how ugly it had gotten in Chicago. The convention ends the next day, and the delegates and protesters return home. But the images from Chicago have been burned into the public consciousness. Think what that convention showed America was the sort of level of commitment and the numbers of people who are taking up sides in this battle for the future of the country. Watch, 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 watch. 
the anti-war movement gains momentum until the U.S. finally withdraws its last combat troops from Vietnam in 1973. Five years after the Chicago riots, a hard-earned peace is at hand, thanks in part to the legions of Americans who were willing to demonstrate under homemade battle flags like this one, which found its way to the Chicago History Museum. Like many of the revolutionary flags flown at the 1968 convention, the identity of this flag's designer remains a mystery. While this flag is a relic of a bloody battle, 1,200 miles away in Massachusetts, the Fall River Historical Society has an artifact that was recovered from the scene of a bloody murder. And it could hold the key to one of the most infamous homicides of the last 100 years. Coming up on Mysteries at the Museum. In Fall River, Massachusetts, an old granite mansion stares down at passers-by. It's the Fall River Historical Society. The museum is packed with bizarre ornaments from years gone by. The Fall River Historical Society has a very large collection of items that came out of homes in Fall River, so visiting the Historical Society is, is very much a step into the past. But in the museum's basement store, curator Michael Martins guards a far more sinister item. It's a five-pound iron hatchet head. Its rusty blade is still sharp. The hatchet in the Historical Society's collection is often referred to as the handleless hatchet. If one examines the hatchet, it's obvious that the handle had been cut and then perhaps snapped. Such an item would have been commonplace in any 19th century Fall River home. But this hatchet is different. It was found at an infamous crime scene and bore witness to a series of gruesome killings. It's the key to one of the most notorious unsolved murders of all time. The tale begins in the summer of 1892. A self-made businessman named Andrew Borden has made his home in Fall River with his wife, Abby. Abby Durfee Gray Borden was Andrew Borden's second wife. She married into the family in 1865. Sharing the family home are Andrew Borden's daughters by a previous marriage, Emma and Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Borden's life, by all accounts, was a fairly easy life, and she appears to have been well provided for. From the outside, the Borden family seems to enjoy a peaceful, prosperous life together. But it will soon transpire that the outward trappings of gentility are just an illusion. On August 4th, 1892, some believe a long-standing family feud finally came to a chilling climax. Abby Borden told the maid, Bridget, that she wanted her to wash the first floor windows inside and out. And sometime around 9 o'clock in the morning, she went upstairs to make the bed in the guest bedroom. It was Mr. Borden's custom to come home at around noon. Um, he hadn't been feeling well. He came home unexpectedly around 11 o'clock. Sometime before noon, Lizzie Borden summoned the maid, Bridget Sullivan, with these four chilling words. Someone has killed father. When the police arrive, they find Andrew Borden on his living room couch, bludgeoned to death. His wife, Abby Borden, lies dead in the upstairs bedroom, her skull smashed. 
Who was behind this hideous crime and what motive did they have? No one knows. At the time of the murders, we know that um, Lizzie Borden was about the house, as was the maid, Bridget Sullivan. Those are the only two people that we, we definitely know were on the premises. Having no motive, the maid is quickly dismissed as a suspect. But police soon realize Lizzie Borden had two powerful incentives to kill, money and property. It does appear that the family got along quite well until a few years before the murders. Because of a real estate transaction, it appears to have caused some animosity with the Borden sisters. The previous year, Andrew Borden had purchased another home for his second wife, Abby. But Andrew Borden's daughters, who were from a previous marriage, felt they were owed something as well. From the point of the real estate transaction, it appears that there were some difficulties in that household. During interrogation, suspicion mounted. Lizzie apparently gave very vague answers to questions as to her whereabouts. Police search the property. They find a clue that they believe will help them finger the killer. A broken axe head. It appeared to have been freshly cleaned. They did find it fit into the different angles of the wounds on the skull, and since the prosecution needed a hatchet, this one fit the bill. Did Lizzie Borden use this hatchet to kill her parents? After several days of questioning, Lizzie Borden is arrested. And on June 5th, 1893, she is put on trial for murder. The prosecution's case relies heavily on what it claims is the murder weapon. A forensic expert shows how the wounds to the victim's skulls and the hatchet's blade fit together but the evidence is not enough to convince the jury. All of the evidence in this case was circumstantial. They had absolutely no proof of Lizzie Borden's guilt. It was an 11-day trial, and she was acquitted on the 12th day. It's possible that the very brutality of the bloody slayings are what spared Lizzie Borden. It was very difficult for people to come to terms with the idea that a woman could have murdered in such a fashion. So did Lizzie Borden get away with murder? I don't think anyone will ever definitively know who murdered the Bordens. I think it's highly unlikely. Today, the only remaining witness is this broken hatchet. Rightly or wrongly, Lizzie Borden's name will forever be linked with a gruesome double murder. But not everyone who plays a part in this nation's great history is remembered so vividly. An object in the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History tells the tale of a forgotten hero who helped save the world from total destruction. I'm prepared to wait for my answer until hell freezes over. Coming up on Mysteries at the Museum. Washington, D.C., America's proud capital, is home to the biggest museum complex in the world the renowned Smithsonian Institution. One of the most popular branches of the Smithsonian is the National Museum of American History. With over three million artifacts, this museum has the definitive take on the history of the United States. And hidden within its vast collection is what seems at first a puzzling acquisition a worn and weathered 80-year-old briefcase. 
But this attache once belonged to a lifelong politician and diplomat and held countless top-secret and sensitive government documents. The briefcase we have in our collection once belonged to Adlai Stevenson. For some 40 years, Stevenson carried this simple briefcase as a governor, a presidential candidate, and the American ambassador to the United Nations. I would say the briefcase is witness to many moments in time. But curators at the Smithsonian believe this briefcase was party to a watershed event that changed the history of the planet. 13 critical days when the fate of the free world was at stake. How would you pull back from the brink? And that's what the Cuban Missile Crisis was, was one of those moments where everybody went right to the brink. The story of the Cuban Missile Crisis is well known, its main players all too familiar. But at the heart of the crisis is a little-known diplomat whose steadfast actions might just have saved the world from nuclear war. And at hand, at the crucial moment, was this simple briefcase. What did it contain? And how did Stevenson help defuse the most dangerous confrontation of the Cold War? October 1962. The world's two superpowers, the USA and the USSR, are locked in a dangerous nuclear arms race. Both of these superpowers are building these large arsenals of weapons that can destroy the world. In the U.S., concerns are growing over Soviet ties to a communist nation just off the American coast, Cuba. And the CIA is about to make a shocking discovery that will confirm the nation's worst fears. Early morning, October 14, an American U-2 spy plane completes a recon flight over the island, taking 928 aerial photographs. The photographs show several nuclear missile bases under construction. From their size and design, it's clear that they are Russian-made. By the time the aerial photos hit President Kennedy's desk, the terrifying implications are clear. These bases could launch short-range and mid-range missiles that could attack virtually every city in the United States. Cuba is just 90 miles from the U.S., Millions of Americans could be just hours away from a nuclear attack. After five tense days of around-the-clock deliberations, Kennedy calls for a naval blockade of the island to prevent Russian ships from arriving with more nuclear supplies. When Kennedy announces the blockade on national television, shockwaves reverberate around the world. Once that information comes out, there's this panic. The Soviets deny the existence of the weapons and regard the blockade as an act of war. The Soviets had no idea that the Americans actually had tangible evidence of the missiles. American destroyers move into position but the Soviet supply ships steam ahead. We were really at the brink of war between the two superpowers. In a last-ditch effort, the United Nations steps in and demands an emergency session. And a new player enters the fray, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Adlai Stevenson. 
October 25th, Stevenson arrives at the UN in New York. He carries with him his briefcase, a trusted companion which has held countless documents throughout his long career. Now, it carries the notes and papers Stevenson will use in the most critical presentation of his life. Stevenson prepares to show the world irrefutable evidence that the Soviets are building missile silos on the island of Cuba. This will be the definitive diplomatic showdown of the crisis. Finally, Stevenson confronts his counterpart, the Soviet ambassador, Valerian Zorin. Stevenson at that moment turns to him and says, I have a simple question to ask you. Does the Soviet Union have missiles in Cuba? That's yes or no. He's clearly commanding the room, and he's giving a great performance. You will have your answer in due course. I'm prepared to wait for my answer until hell freezes over, if that's your decision. When he's demanding an answer, it's something that he knows, and everyone knows, the whole world is watching. With the attention of the world focused on him, Stevenson unveils the aerial photographs that prove the missiles exist. The world awaits the Russian response with bated breath. And it's those aerial photographs that become the evidence that changes the dynamic of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And they realize that now is the time to start step back from this crisis and find a negotiated way out. The next day, on October 26th, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev relays a message to Kennedy. The Soviet Union will remove the missiles from Cuba, provided the U.S. agrees not to invade the island nation. And at the heart of the crisis was Adlai Stevenson, a man who stood up to fight for peace in front of the entire world. That moment where he becomes the voice of the nation for that brief moment is something that he'll always be remembered for. This briefcase at the National Museum of American History represents the pinnacle of one man's career and a diplomatic victory won under the most perilous circumstances. Axes and attaches. Protest flags and polar planes. Mysterious bombs and haunted busts, each with its own secret history waiting to be discovered. These are the mysteries at the museum. With every new handcuff escape, audiences become more fascinated by Houdini. So what was his secret? The answer lies in the History Museum at the castle's vast collection of Houdini's lockpicks and keys. Audiences around the world wondered how Houdini was able to escape any cuff that could ever be found. These lockpicks are part of that secret. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 